thank you for listening to the Skeptics in the Pub online podcast. This unedited audio is taken from Rebel Cell, A New View of Cancer, by Dr. Kat Arney. It was first broadcast live on the 13th of August, 2020. A video recording of this and many other talks hosted by Skeptics in the Pub online are still available on our YouTube channel. We hope you enjoy this podcast and thank you for your support. Thank you very much. Um, And as is the tradition with Skeptics in the Pub, I've kind of done most of my talks so far on my virtual book tour completely straight. And this time, uh, as is my tradition, I am having a glass of red wine so uh, it's really, really a pleasure to be part of uh, part of the Skeptics in the Pub online because my first book, Herding Hemingway's Cats, I just have so many great memories of doing loads of the Skeptics events and meeting so many of you. So it's, uh, it's, it's really nice to do this online, even if not in person. But also given the temperature this week, it's probably good that you can't smell me right now, if I'm being honest. So I'm here to, uh, tonight to talk about my new book, Rebel Cell. Uh, Cancer Evolution and the Science of Life. And it's a book that's been germinating for quite a long time. So I spent 12 years in the science comms team at Cancer Research UK. And you think, oh, well, that's where it came from. That's all the stuff I learned, all the people I talked to, getting fascinated by what cancer is and where it came from. But actually, my interest goes even further back than that, because uh, during my PhD, I was really fascinated by the question of how do you make a baby? How do you go, I mean, not that way, but in a biological sense, how do you go from one single cell to making an organism, one single cell with one set of DNA, one genome, and from that life unfolds, one cell to many cells from those instructions? And when I got involved in cancer research, I started to realize, and also this was uh, the place where I did my PhD, was an institute that had developmental biology and cancer researchers working together. You realize that cancer is kind of like the dark mirror of that process. It's one cell with a genetic code becoming many cells, but in the most terrible and horrible and, and just corrupted kind of way. So it's that still that question of how does How does a genome, how do genes control life, whether that's good, bounteous, wonderful life or corrupted, terrible, destructive life? So this isn't really a book about about cancer. It's a book about life in all its forms. And cancer, the, the sort of thing I want to get across is cancer is a form of life and it is a natural process that unfolds within us because we are alive, because we are multicellular, and because we are like all of life on earth, and as far as we know, likely to be all life in the universe, subjected to the laws of evolution by natural selection. So I guess if you want to think about like, what beliefs am I challenging? I'm challenging the belief that cancer is is something external. It It is part of life. So in my talk, I'm going to briefly cover, you know, where did cancer come from? What does make it so difficult to treat? And how can we actually use really effective knowledge to try and beat it? And what does that actually mean? What does that look like? Now, before I start, I'm going to talk about some things that um, may seem quite challenging, because, you know, there are reasons why many cancer treatments fail. And I think that particularly for advanced cancers, we are really not thinking about this disease in the right way. But I want to start with a message of hope, which is that, you know, the glass is half full. 
half of all people diagnosed with cancer now will survive for at least 10 years after their diagnosis. And that's a figure that has doubled within my own lifetime. So we are making significant progress. Within that, there's uh, some kind of tricksy stuff in the statistics. We've made amazing progress in some cancers and particularly in diagnosing and treating early stage cancers. Uh, and some, some types of cancer like uh, breast cancer, bowel cancer, testicular cancer, some childhood cancers, we've made really great strides there. But there's still a glass half empty. And I think one of the things that sort of really came home to me in the book is that a lot of the very, and as a geneticist, it's quite uncomfortable, a lot of the work that's gone into the genetics and the molecular biology of cancer has driven us into ideas about how to fill that glass to the top that I just don't think are going to get us there. So I want to start by thinking about this idea of where did cancer come from? And the first couple of chapters in the book are addressing something that I think is quite a common myth or a misconception in the public imagination, that cancer is a, a modern human disease. It's a disease that we've brought upon ourselves with our terrible, toxic, modern lifestyles, and it is all our fault somehow. Um, it's been visited upon us. If you take this idea back in time, you get the idea that uh, cancer was a punishment from the gods or something like that. And I think we see that reflected today in the idea that perhaps uh, cancer is something that we've done wrong, something toxic or that we haven't obeyed the right rules of healthy living in some way. But the more I started to research the, the types and the, the history of cancer, you really, really realise that this is not just a human problem and this is not just a modern problem. Because cancer we find across almost every single branch of the tree of life. It's absolutely incredible. So uh, there's a, one of the books that I found really useful when I was researching this. It's a book called The Ecology and Evolution of Cancer. It's edited by um, Beata Ijvari and her colleagues. And within it, they have uh, 20, at least 20, very closely typed pages of all the animal species so far that are known to get cancer. So there's everything in there from, from sea turtles to, uh, where are sea turtles, shell ducks, ostriches, uh, iguanas, rattlesnakes, fox snakes, more iguanas, loggerhead turtles, skinks, uh, frogs, toads, salamanders, platyfish. Almost, you know, if you can imagine it, it's in here. Uh, interestingly, two notable exceptions to this, comb jellyfish appear not to be affected by cancer. There are no known examples of comb jellyfish with cancers and also sponges. Uh, sponges are incredibly resistant to cancer and no one really knows why. There's a guy in a lab in Arizona called Carlo Malley who's growing these tiny little white sponges. They're about this size, about like a spiky mint imperial, if you can imagine that. Uh, and he's just nuking them with enormous amounts of radiation, enough to kill a human. And these sponges are just fine. So I think it's very curious that there are a couple of species that are incredibly cancer resistant. Everything else, not so much. And this goes way, way deep. So this, uh, the organism on the right, this sort of green tuby thing, this is something called a hydra. And this is a tiny organism that lives in the water. And in 2014, a paper came out. I, I was at Cancer Research UK at the time, and it just blew my mind. And we were all like, what? Because researchers, um, Thomas Donchet-Losho and his colleagues, they'd found a tumour 
growing in this tiny organism that is basically a tube of cells. There are three different cell types and they're all pretty much the same in these organisms. They're a tube of watery cells with tentacles and completely spontaneously, they, you know, they hadn't treated these, these animals in any kind of way, organisms in any kind of way, but a tumor had spontaneously formed in one of these tiny, tiny hydra. And that really highlights the fact that this is a deep biological process across the whole tree of life. Now, in terms of like the incidence of cancer, so how often a particular species is likely to develop cancer, again, humans are not actually at the top of that list. There are some cancers where we can say, yes, there are um, clear environmental things or things in our lifestyles that do increase the risk. So an obvious one being smoking and lung cancer. But if you equalize for all those kind of risks that we know about, humans are kind of in the middle. So very, very big, long-lived organisms like uh, elephants, bowhead whales, some species of bats, famous naked mole rats. Uh, you can ask me about those later. Uh, they are very, very resistant to cancer, but cancers do still arise in them. Smaller animals, so uh, the sort of ones that kind of live fast and die young, uh, small rodents, things like that, they tend to develop more tumours spontaneously. So each species has its own kind of underlying cancer risk that is tied to its biology and its evolution. And I go into a, a lot more detail about this in the book if you're, if you're really interested in sort of the, the balance between life history and cancer risk. There's something called Pito's paradox, which is that you would expect big, long-lived organisms to get more cancers. You know, they're big, they've got loads of cells, they hang around for ages, they're constantly making new cells. And every time you're making new cells, is a chance to develop cancer. But actually, these big, long-lived organisms don't get cancers. It's the small ones that turn over fast, they live fast and die young, that are more likely to, to develop tumours. And that's because they don't invest in cancer protection because they know they're not going to be here on this earth for very long. They're going to pass their genes on and the next generation takes over. Whereas if you're an elephant and you're around for 80, 90, 100 years, you've evolved cancer protection mechanisms. Otherwise, you wouldn't have got it that far. So, you know, humans are somewhere in the middle. And also, this is not just uh, a modern disease either. So with perfect timing, last week, there was a new announcement of a dinosaur bone, a 77 million year old dinosaur bone that had a, an osteosarcoma, a bone tumor discovered in it. There's uh, quite a famous paper where some researchers took a little x-ray machine around all the natural history museums of North America and were like, can we put your dinosaur skeletons in our x-ray machine? and found evidence of tumours in dinosaur fossils, particularly hadrosaurs, these duck-billed dinosaurs in the picture. And then, as you might expect, uh, well, one of the, the oldest examples, there's a 240 million year old turtle fossil, sort of precursor turtle, that's been found with a tumour in it. So this, this stuff goes deep and old. And as you might expect, you know, anywhere you find human remains, we find evidence of cancer. And there's sort of two different arguments here. So some people say, well, you know, yes, given the number of human remains we found, there are some examples of cancer in, in these specimens. And there's a list of around 250 kind of known, uh, reasonably well-quantified well specimens that we know of, of, of cancers in humans. And you say, well, of all the human specimens that have been found, uh, that shows that cancer was very, very rare. And I query that. Because for a start, you know, we don't dig up age-matched 
you know, series of people out of out of wherever they appear to be found in the ground. You know, you get what you get when you're fossil hunting. And also, we haven't been looking for this. And the more people are looking for cancer in antiquity, particularly with new techniques, new um, CT scanning, things like proteomics techniques that are looking for, for faulty proteins that are signs of cancer, the more cancer they find. So there's a, a reason that yeah, cancer tends to get much more common over the age of 60. And I can explain a bit later as, as to why that is. And there were many, many things in our past evolution as humans that were likely to kill us before we got there. So we don't necessarily find as many cancers as we might expect in a, a full stretch of the human population and the age ranges that we have today. But I think the fact that we find any cancers and particularly the fact that we can find things like quite rare childhood tumours in ancient specimens. I think that tells us that cancer has always been here. You know, there are Greek writings about how to treat various types of cancers and, and lumps and bumps. So cancer has always been with us. And that's because uh, I go into quite a lot of detail in the book about the, the idea that cancer is the price of multicellularity. We are multicellular beings. And if you are multicellular, you have multiple cells, then those cells kind of exist in a society with each other. It's, it's a, a sort of a social contract that we are multicellular organisms. These cells do that. Those cells do that. These cells multiply when they're meant to. Those cells die when they're meant to. You kind of do your job. You don't make too much mess. You clean up after yourself. You don't take more than you need. There is a social contract that governs multicellular bodies because otherwise they wouldn't work. But cheats can arise in this system. And that's why the book's called The Rebel Cell. There can be sort of rebellions against this order. And those rebellions are driven by genetic changes that make cells grow out of control, consume more than they need, don't die when they should, stop doing the job they're meant to be doing and start going off and doing something else. And that's where cancer starts. So this sort of We've got very fixated on a very genetic reductive view of cancer, that it's, it's a cell that goes wrong and it multiplies out of control. And if we just understand everything that's gone wrong in that cell, we'll know exactly where it came from, how to stop it and how to treat it. But this idea that, you know, we are multicellular bodies and cells kind of arise as cheats within that system. So it's not just about the cell, it's about the environment these cheats arise in, I think it's really, really interesting. And uh, there's a few examples of where we can see in, in other systems. So, for example, in tiny amoebas, little slime molds, we can see that certain genetic changes make cells in these slime molds more likely to cheat. So they end up in a, a spore going off to the next generation rather than a little stalk that will die when these, uh, when these slime molds fruit and form spores. So there are examples everywhere in life of how genetic changes can enable cells to kind of, you know, get one up over the cells around them. And this would not work if every cell was cheating, right? In a, in a society, you know, in a human society, if everyone's cheating, you kind of got a Mad Max situation on your hands. But, you know, some people do cheat and sometimes those cheats do prosper. And it's the same every level down from human societies to animal societies to societies of cells that, you know, cheats will emerge because cheats emerge in any society. So that's the kind of the concept of the rebel cell. 
And then here's an interesting thought experiment for you. If there were then aliens, would aliens have cancer? This was kind of a bit of a late night one for me. I think I, I may have had a couple of scotches at this point. But I was, um, I was thinking, well, yeah, if, if aliens are multicellular and aliens, you know, sort of obey these, their bodies obey these rules of cellular society and the, the rules of natural selection, evolution by natural selection. And unless they sort of solved Pito's paradox, like the sponges or the jellyfish, then, yeah, I mean, aliens could get cancer. I mean, it's, you know, interesting late night one. Think about that. So we come to this idea of like, what, what is cancer? What actually is this thing? And um, when I was at Cancer Research UK, we would, we would write endless documents about like, what is cancer? And I would always start with the same sentence. Well, sit down, type, cancer starts when a cell picks up genetic mutations and multiplies out of control. And we sort of, uh, this is codified in the scientific world as what I like to call the, uh, the somatic mutation theory, which is a kind of a genetic bingo. You can think about this. So you have a, you have a cell and it's, you know, doing its thing and it gets a genetic change and it starts multiplying. And then one of those cells picks up another genetic change that makes it multiply even more. And then one of those cells picks up another genetic change. And maybe it means that it's, it can start to invade the cells around it. And once you've picked up enough of these, you've filled your genetic bingo card, then you become a cancer. And there's lots of diagrams sort of outlining this, this very, very linear progression of picking up certain genetic changes and then bingo, you're a cancer. And this has been really, really pervasive. And it comes back to that kind of genetic reductionism that I talked about. We've been very, very focused on if we can just find all these mutations that take cells all the way on that journey from being normal to being cancer, then we'll really understand how this works. And then also, if we design drugs to kind of tackle these various mutations, then we'll be able to treat cancer. So this is like a very, very gene-centric idea of the disease. And uh, basically, a rocket was put up the arse of this theory. I believe that's the technical way of, phr of phrasing it. In um, 2014, uh, 2014, 2015, she says, just checking. Um, in 2015, by a team at the Sanger Institute. So this was uh, work by Phil Jones and Peter Campbell and Inigo Martin Carena. And what they did was really interesting because... With the sort of the somatic mutation, the genetic bingo theory of cancer, we become very obsessed with looking at cancer cells and seeing what's wrong in them. And all biomedical researchers do this. We look at what's gone wrong. We look at the disease. We want to understand the disease so that we can treat it, which kind of makes sense. But they were like, OK, we've done all this analysis and we have all these wonderful genetic sequencing technologies that mean that we can read the genes in a tumor in incredible detail. You can generate this shopping list of all the mutations you can find in a cancer. And they were like, has anyone done that for normal cells? And people were like, no, why would you do that? They're normal cells. And they were like, yeah, let's have a look. And the first experiment they did was they got hold of, they wanted to get hold of some skin. Now, skin is really interesting because it is exposed to ultraviolet radiation, which causes DNA damage. And, you know, we know that that increases the risk of skin cancer. So they were like, yeah, you know, we'll, we'll look at some normal skin 
Uh, skin cancer is still very rare. So, you know, and your skin is a lot of it. So they wanted to find some examples of skin that had been exposed to ultraviolet radiation. So, you know, was outside the clothing area, uh, but hadn't been, wasn't likely to have been covered in sunscreen because they really wanted to look at the impact of, you know, a lifetime of ultraviolet exposure on this skin. And they realized where on the body does that happen? And it's your eyelids. So your eyelids are exposed to the sun, but unless you're very, very keen, you don't sort of smother your eyelids in sunscreen. And so what they did was they, um, they went to a local surgeon who was removing little flaps of skin from people who have a this kind of condition where the eyelids become very droopy and it affects people's vision. So they do a little bit of surgery to remove the excess skin. So this is just, just waste healthy skin. And they said, can we have it? And they were like, I guess. Uh, so they took these little pieces of skin and they punched tiny, tiny holes, loads and loads and loads and loads and loads and loads and loads of tiny, tiny holes in the skin and sequenced. They did DNA analysis, read the DNA of those little patches, tiny patches of healthy skin. And what they found was absolutely incredible, that this perfectly healthy, normal looking skin, no sign of cancer, nothing like that, was absolutely riddled with mutations. And not only that, many of these patches contained mutations that if you had found them in a cancer, you would say that that was a, a cancer gene that was driving that cancer. You know, it would be a, a tick on your genetic bingo card. And this was really, really mind blowing because it basically says that like normal, healthy tissue is full of mutations. This kind of shouldn't be surprising. We sort of knew this, but seeing it so starkly and seeing that so many of these patches of skin had mutations in cancer genes was really, really striking. Um, and, you know, and the more, the older you are, the more of these patches you have with the more mutations in them. And it was quite scary. I'm, I'm in my 40s now and I went to see Phil Jones who did this work and he sort of, he peered at me and was like, your skin is a patchwork of mutation. I'm like, oh, no. Um, so that's a nice thought to, to take you to sleep with later. Uh, so they thought, well, that's skin. You know, our skin is a patchwork of mutation. What about the rest of us? So they wanted to look at a different tissue. And the tissue they chose was the esophagus, the tube that connects your mouth down to your stomach. And they went to the local hospital, Addenbrooke's Hospital in Cambridge, and were looking for samples of tissue from people who died in road traffic accidents. So these were healthy people who died in road traffic accidents and that their relatives had said they were happy to consent samples for tissue samples for research. And they started looking at samples of completely normal esophagus in these people. And, and they had a range of ages as well, sort of from people in their 20s to people in their 70s. And their expectation was that they would find, you know, fewer mutations, fewer patches of mutated cells than in the eye, because, you know, the eye is exposed to ultraviolet light. It's something we know causes mutations. Your esophagus, not so much. So they expected to find less mutations and less, less of this sort of damage in there. Well, again, this was a real surprise. So this is, I think, one of the most beautiful data visualizations. Uh, I was going to get a dress made in this fabric, but I wasn't organized enough to do this. So we got a space dress instead. Um, so these diagrams, they show each little circle 
is a patch of mutated cells that carries a mutation in what we would call sort of a significant cancer gene. And the different colors represent the different genes. And the sort of size of the patch reflects the size of the clone, the group of cells, the cluster of cells that all carry that mutation. And you can see going from, from left to right, from someone in their 20s through someone in their 50s through to someone in their 70s, that by the time you're in your 70s, most of your esophagus is made up of these like overlapping and competing patches of cells with various genetic changes that if we found them in cancers, we would say that's a cancer gene, that's a tick on the genetic bingo card. And that is like mind-blowing because it tells us that like all our tissues are kind of sad and messed up. So this idea, this simplistic idea that cancer starts when a cell picks up genetic changes and multiplies out of control. Well, like honey, all your cells are doing it. And by the time you get to a certain age, most of them are doing it. And uh, they did another study on the endometrium, the lining of the womb. And like by the time a woman is in her 60s or 70s, like pretty much all the cells in there are carrying mutations that, again, if we found them in a cancer, we would say that that is a cancer gene that is driving these cells to become a cancer. And then there's a massive paradox here, because if all our bodies are a patchwork of mutation and, you know, normal, healthy doesn't really exist. Everything's a bit messed up in its own kind of way. What's really curious is that cancer is incredibly rare. And this, again, this is kind of a controversial thing to say because we all go, no, cancer is incredibly common. One in two people in the UK will get cancer at some point in their life. We all know people who have developed cancer. We all know people who have died from cancer. You know, how can you say that cancer is rare? This is nonsense. And you say, well, cancer is common on a population level, but on a personal, individual level, cancer is incredibly rare. Because if all your cells are kind of messed up and kind of mutated, but each one of us will likely only develop one, maybe two actual cancers in our entire lifetime, cancer is incredibly rare. It's like winning like the shitty jackpot. Your chances are uh, one in 10 with 14 zeros after it. That's more than the stars in multiple, multiple uh, iterations of the Milky Way. Cancer on a personal, individual level, is incredibly rare. And, you know, I find that kind of reassuring as well, because we get so many messages about, oh, don't do that, oh, don't do that. Ah. And we sort of forget to celebrate the fact that our bodies are amazing at suppressing cancer for most of our lives. And we don't really spend enough time thinking about why or researching why. We always think about what's gone wrong, looking at the cancers that have happened. And we don't look at what's gone right. How do our tissues actually manage to stay healthy for so long with all this damage and all these kind of clusters of cells competing against each other? I think that's really important to start thinking about. And it's something that is really not in the public consciousness because we have this idea that like something causes cancer like you know the finger of god and that gotcha it's like it's much more of an emergent phenomenon of damaged cells emerging out of this sort of damaged landscape the cells that become cheats 
amongst this kind of slightly, you know, landscape that becomes more damaged as we get older. But that does beg a question. So the question is, what actually turns, if all your cells, if all your cells are kind of sad, if all your cells are a bit sad, a bit messed up, what turns a sad cell into a bad cell? If all your cells have got their own mutations and their own problems going on, you know, all of the stuff that's happened to them, they've seen some things. What turns a sad cell into a really bad cell that's actually going to go down the road to cancer? And the answer seems to be not just mutations in individual genes, that kind of genetic bingo, but a much more catastrophic event at the level of the genome. And scientists call this chromosomal instability. And the, the pictures that you can see there, they're a representation of the chromosomes, the sort of the strings of DNA in six different breast cancers. And you can see like, so human cells, we should have 23 pairs of chromosomes in a regular human cell. Uh, just a quick count, you can see that these cells do not have 23 pairs of chromosomes. They have duplications, they have chromosomes missing, they have bits stuck on to other bits. You know, this is some wild rearrangement. We see incredible things, uh, duplications when cells multiply all their DNA, they get double the number of chromosomes and then kind of wild stuff happens. Um, chromosomes get shattered, stitched, glued back together, glued into circles, little fragments of DNA that, that carry in cancer genes that seem to be all over the place. So there needs to be an extra step that turns a, a sad cell that's got, you know, some genetic changes into a really bad cell. And we don't really know what drives this transformation, the chromosomal instability. And again, I think that is a really, really interesting question in cancer research. What kind of flips that switch that makes a cell go into this kind of chromosomal catastrophe that seems to be the thing that sets it down the route? Because, you know, why is this chromosome? This kind of looks like it should be bad, right? If you've got this kind of level of messed up chromosomes, this should be like not good for you so why is this a good thing for cancer cells and it's because this is rocket fuel for evolution if you pick up you know a few genetic changes here and there here and there here and there that's a very slow kind of evolution if you make big changes big genetic rearrangements that is rocket fuel for evolution. If you double your genome, if you have twice as much DNA, twice as many genes to play with, you can start changing some in one way, changing some in another. It doesn't matter if that gets broken or damaged. If this one picks up a change, like, and that's positive, it's kind of rocket fuel that enables cells to really start experimenting, multiplying faster with this, this new genomic fuel that they have for their evolution. So that seems to be the kind of the pivot point that turns, you know, a kind of like, you know, slow growing patch of mutated cells into something that is really starting to cheat the system around it and really starting to grow. And so we can invoke our good friend Darwin here. And this is a process of evolution by natural selection, because it's not just enough to have the genes, right? You, you, you know, evolution doesn't work on genes. It works on what those genes do for things. So what do those changes in the genes do for your cells within the environment of the body that they're in? So within those patches of cells around them. 
And there's sort of a misconception that Darwin's idea of survival of the fittest means like the biggest, the strongest, the best, the ugliest, whatever it is. But it means the best fitted to its environment. So we really cannot forget that the, the product, what cancer evolves from cells with genetic changes that emerge out of an environment that is permissive for them to cheat in. If you have a very restrictive environment, it's very hard for cheats to emerge. If you have a very permissive environment where, you know, anything goes, we turn a blind eye to breaking the rules, it's much more likely that people will cheat. And it's the same for ourselves. And I'm very sad to say that that environment changes as we get older. And as I showed you in the pictures of the esophageal tissue, like, you know, we do become patchworks of mutation as we get older. And after the age of 60, that environment has got to a point where it's much more amenable for cheating cells to emerge. So this tells us some interesting things about how to prevent cancer. And it's not just about don't do this, don't do that, don't do this. It's like, well, of course, like, don't do things that increase the mutations in your cells. Because each one of those patches is still fueled by mutations. And you can induce mutations by doing things like smoking cigarettes, uh, drinking too much alcohol, going in the sun too much, all the things, you know, all the stuff that you know is bad for you. Uh, it's going to increase the chances that your cells will pick up mutations. And that's kind of bad. And also, I suspect that some of these things that we think are carcinogens that cause damage will increase the chances of that chromosomal instability happening. And so, you know, don't, don't induce more mutations than you need, right? That is sensible advice. But also, it's like, what keeps young tissue healthy? What creates that, that restrictive uh, lockdown environment in our tissues that reduces the chances that cheats can emerge? And it's kind of a new way of thinking about cancer prevention. It's about what keeps our tissues young and beautiful on the inside. Maybe this is how exercise works, the benefits of physical activity. Maybe reducing inflammation is something that's important here. Um, maybe like the uh, conditions that we know that increase the risk of cancer, things like obesity, are actually acting through altering the environment within the tissue and making it more likely that cheating cells will emerge. So understanding how do we keep our tissues healthy, not necessarily what's happened when it's gone wrong, but if we can push out that kind of outer border from when the time in our lives, when this starts to kind of override the system, when cancer cells really start to take hold, if we can push that out by 5, 10, 15 years, that starts to be a really significant improvement in healthy human lifestyle uh, lifespan without cancer. So that's kind of like an interesting thing. And I don't think many people in cancer prevention are thinking about it on that kind of Darwinian level, really. They're just saying like, okay, don't do the bad stuff. Do the good stuff. We don't really know how it works. Um, so I think that's interesting. Wine break. And then, so that's how do we prevent cancer? And then this brings us on to the question of how do we cure cancer? Because this is the big thing. Everyone wants to know what is the cure for cancer? We all want to know this. So the, the kind of the rules for curing cancer, most importantly, find it before it spreads and get rid of it. That is guaranteed cure for cancer. 
If you can find a solid tumour before it has started to spread through the body and with surgery you remove it, that cancer is cured. It is gone. So there's an old surgeon's mantra, uh, nothing heals like cold steel. Uh, there's a modern caveat to that that I will uh, uh, add, which is um, potentially accept immunotherapy. So immunotherapy are some very new and exciting drugs that they kind of stimulate the immune system to recognize and attack cancer cells. There's been a huge amount of hype about these drugs. They are very, very exciting. And in some cases, they do seem to be curative. But they don't work for everyone. They don't work for all types of cancer. They work for roughly about one in five people who try them. And we don't know why. And we also don't know about the long-term effects of stimulating the immune system in this way. And in some cases, they can cause hyper-progression of cancers. So again, they kind of, it, uh, they make cancers grow incredibly fast. So, you know, we don't really understand enough about these drugs yet to use them effectively. Potentially, they could be curative in the future. And I think that's, it's a very exciting area. So the kind of the, the way to cure cancer, if we can't do these things, once it's spread through the body and uh, absenting immunotherapy, we sort of, uh, and there's also radiotherapy, which can actually be curative uh, for certain, certain types of cancer, certain types of people can be curative. And there are some drugs that can be curative. So some types of chemotherapy, particularly for things like blood cancers, some children's cancers, um, hormone therapies for things like breast cancer, um, testicular cancer, weirdly sensitive to chemotherapy. So, you know, each of the drugs that we know works and each of the treatments we know works does have its place. But we've seen this replaced by a new idea, which is basically take that genetic shopping list of treatments uh, sorry, the genetic shopping list of genes, of change genes, of mutations in cancers, and then develop drugs against them. So we find the genes and then we find the magic bullets, because the idea being that if there is a faulty gene that is driving a cancer to proliferate, and if we develop a drug that targets it, then we will kill those cancer cells. Makes sense, right? And this is kind of the whole principle of modern oncology, sort of molecular oncology, precision oncology. And there are many, many, many very, very, very expensive targeted therapies uh, for, for all sorts of types of cancer that target these changes. But there is a very big problem with many of these drugs. And it's best described in this, uh, this is a paper that I saw presented at a conference. This is from 2011. This presented at the National Cancer Research Institute conference. And I was in the audience when um, Richard Murray talked about this. And he was one of the people who discovered this drug called Vemurafenib. I've only had half a glass of wine. Uh, Vemurafenib, which is a drug that is designed to target a, a faulty gene that drives melanoma skin cancers. So they discovered the gene that's faulty in most of these cancers. They designed a drug that kind of locks onto the product of this faulty gene. And this is a photo of a patient, and you can see that under his skin, he has all these sort of metastases, the lumps where the cancer has spread. And the next picture, you could hear the gasp in the auditorium when this was presented, because this is the same man after 15 weeks taking this drug, Vemurafenib. Um, It's absolutely incredible. Like, everyone was just like, oh, amazing. You would not believe that that was the same person. 
And then the next slide, you can imagine the sound that came around the audience when the next slide went up, because this is just eight weeks after that. So his cancers had just come back with an absolute vengeance, and many of them in the same places. You can see, for example, the sort of the nodules in his collarbone are the same tumours. So the drug shrank them, but they didn't go away. The cancers came back. They evolved resistance to the treatment and came back. And many of these drugs, the problem is, is that they, they work. And in some cases, they work for months, in some cases, years. But they are not cures because cancers evolve resistance. And that's because we know now that as well as our, our adult bodies being patchworks of mutation, cancers themselves are patchworks of mutation. They're made up of tiny groups, tiny clones of mutated cells, each going off on their kind of evolutionary choose your own adventure. And once a tumor gets to a certain size, there will be a cluster of cells in there that is resistant to any treatment you can throw at it. And these drugs, they are incredibly expensive. They have made millions and millions and millions and millions of pounds for the companies that have uh, developed them and, and taken them through testing. But they have not brought cures. They brought survival that in some cases, in the best cases, is measured in years. In some cases, is measured in months. In some cases, is measured in weeks. And in the worst example I saw, there was a paper that talked about survival, uh, an increase of nine days in survival from this particular drug. So these are the drugs that they're talked about in the headlines in the newspapers as the magic bullets, the holy grails, you know, the cures. And people are told, these are the drugs, you, mu you must want these drugs, we must give you these drugs. The NHS must pay for these drugs. And we need to be a lot more clear-eyed that these are not, in many cases, wonder drugs or miracle cures. And that's a hard, hard message to hear because we want them to be cures. We want this stuff to work. And we ignore the fact that they do work for some time, but then you develop resistance and you can end up, you know, maybe there'll be another drug you can try and you can play whack-a-mole with this. And one of the stories I cover in the book is someone who's very well known to the skeptics movement. I talked to Crispy and Jago and, um, and he's, I think, now four years out from his diagnosis of kidney cancer. And, and his oncologists are playing whack-a-mole with his cancer. He's, I think, now on his fourth different treatment. And I really hope that when his cancer, as it will, evolves resistance to the one that he's on, that there is another one coming through. But these are not cures. And every treatment brings its own side effects and it, it brings its own risks. So this kind of poses us a bit of a challenge, because if we know that resistance will always emerge to cancer, that will always evolve, because within any population of cancer cells, there will be a population that is resistant to anything. And the more you put a selective pressure on it, like a drug, the more you actually increase the chances that that resistant population will win in the end. So how do we actually win this end game against cancer. And we need to take a different view of what does a cure for cancer look like. And I don't think it is one of these incredibly expensive fancy drugs. I think they have their places 
And I certainly think that in many cases they can be useful. I just think we need to use them in a much, much cleverer, different way. And so one of the most inspiring people I talked to while I was researching this is this chap. This is Bob Gattenby. He's at the Moffitt Cancer Center in Tampa in Florida. And Bob is not a geneticist. He is a mathematician. You can tell because he's got the blackboard behind him with some, I believe that is maths on it. Uh, as someone who absolutely hates maths, I was very disturbed to discover that the cure for cancer may actually be maths. But anyway, here we go. And um, so Bob got really interested in this question of what does the cure for cancer look like? And that we have all these fancy drugs and all these treatments. And basically, if you don't, if you don't kill it, if you don't kill cancer, it will come back at some point if you don't get rid of it. So he was like, well, what can we do? And he was one day, he was reading uh, an article about these little critters. And these are diamondback moths. And they are an endemic pest in the US. They live on things like cabbage and, and all sorts of crops. And interestingly, uh, Bob only got interested in reading this article because he absolutely hates cabbage. And these moths love cabbage. So he was quite interested in reading it. But he realized that farmers have already solved this problem of resistance because the diamondback moth is now resistant to every pesticide that you can throw at it because it's basically become exactly like a cancer. Uh, farmers have used one drug consistently and, and a lot to try and kill these moths. They've emerged with resistance because some individuals in the population had a genetic variation that made them resistant. That population eventually took over. You try another drug, same thing happens. You try another drug, same thing happens. And now you've ended up with a pest that just cannot be killed. So this is basically what happens in advanced cancer as it becomes more and more resistant to all the treatments that we have. And Bob was like, that's the same problem. What have people done? How, do, how have they solved this problem? And they've solved it by using Darwinian principles. And the idea is that in any population, whether that's organisms or cancer cells, you will have genetic variation. And we certainly know this to be true in cancers. We can see the genetic heterogeneity, the pockets of cells with different changes in cancers. So in any population, and the same for the, the moths or any other crop pest, you will have some organisms or cells that are sensitive to the pesticide, the treatment, and you will have some that are resistant. And importantly, the genetic changes that make those insects, cells, resistant to the treatments, they actually affect their fitness. They make them kind of a bit crapper, if you like. They're, they're a bit less fit. They, they don't breed quite as well. They're not as good pests or cells. And so you can use this, and the farmers use this to control the levels of pests. They assume, and they absolutely assume, that resistance will emerge at some point. So they, they never assume that it won't. They never assume that they're just treating something for good and it will go away. They always assume that resistance will emerge. And so they aim to balance the populations. So when the pests in the field get too much, they treat, but just to bring the level down. So to get rid of the, the insects that are sensitive to the pesticide and you leave the resistance ones there and you know they're not so great. So they take a little while to come back. And some of the sensitive ones will eventually come back and control them for a bit. 
and then the population grows and then you treat again and the population grows and you treat again. So you're not trying to eradicate. You're just trying to control at a level that's acceptable and doesn't cause too much damage to the crop. And actually now every pesticide that's brought on the market has to have a resistance plan built in. How do you use this pesticide in a way that doesn't just drive resistance straight away? And so why don't we do that with cancer treatments? Because we have this way of treating cancer where we treat with something called the maximum tolerated dose, which is basically, let's try and nuke it. And what it does is you give a large dose of a drug and it gets rid of all the cells that are sensitive to that drug and it leaves any resistant cells. And you're like, okay, that seemed to work. Let's treat again. Let's try and get rid of the rest of them. And that will never work because those resistant cells are resistant. And, you know, they'll grow back into the spaces that were left. They will continue to thrive because they are not affected by the drug. And this is exactly the pattern we see with cancer therapies in advanced cancers. Once you have enough populations of cells where some are sensitive and some are resistant, you give a treatment and resistance inevitably emerges. That drug no longer works. You have to try something else or you are out of luck. And Bob was like, well, why don't we apply the same thinking of the pest management? Why don't we apply a more sort of, you know, balancing these populations and assuming that resistant cells are in there and kind of try and control them? And so he calls this adaptive therapy based on uh, you know, the Darwinian principle of adaptation. So you start with the same kind of cancer where most of the cells are sensitive to the drug and there's a pocket in there that are resistant. And you give a dose of the drug that reduces the tumor, but doesn't get rid of everything. You reduce it to about half. So you've still got sensitive cells in there. You've still got some resistant cells in there. And the sensitive cells outcompete the resistant ones. They're kind of better. They grow faster. And so they kind of fight against the resistant cells and they start to grow back. Uh, and you wait and you wait. And when the tumor's back to where it was, you treat again and you bring it down. And again, the sensitive cells, they sort of control the resistant cells and you stop treatment and you let them grow back. So you're never getting to the point where you're trying to get rid of all the sensitive cells and leaving the resistant ones to take over. You're trying to kind of balance out these populations of cells to control each other. It's like a kind of rival gangs in a city. It's like, you know, Let's let them balance, balance them out and let them fight it out amongst themselves, right? You know, they'll control each other. So it's that sort of principle. And so they tried this. They, they did all the maths and they looked at the kind of how do, you, how do you need to understand these populations and the kind of cycles of treatment. Uh, they actually left the equations out of the grant application for the clinical trial because they thought it was going to be scary. Uh, and I completely sympathize. But they, they tried it in animal models and it worked. And they've tried it in patients. So the first trial they did was prostate cancer and uh, advanced prostate cancer, metastatic prostate cancer that spread through the body. It's treated with a drug called abiraterone, Zytiga. And the average length of time on this drug before the cancer progresses to a point where you're like, no, we've got to stop this because this is not working, is about 18 months. And they had people on cycles of treatment where you would treat, you drop the cancer to about half of what it was, and then let it come back. 
They've had people on those cycles for more than four years. If this was a new drug, you know, it would be on headlines all over the world. Like, you know, there are there are wonder drugs that have far smaller benefits in survival that are you know, getting much more attention than this simple way of applying the drugs we already have in a much cleverer way. Um, the key thing is that they're trying this in other types of cancer as well. In theory, it should work in any type of cancer where you can understand and measure the populations of cells and kind of do the modeling to make it work. Uh, you have to be able to monitor the burden of the cancer in the body. So with prostate cancer, that's relatively easy. There's a test called PSA test. It measures the level of um, a chemical produced by prostate cancer cells in the blood. So you can just take a blood test and that gives you a readout roughly of how much cancer is in the body. So maybe it has to be done by scans. That's not kind of ideal. So if there are ways where you can really monitor how much cancer is in the body quite easily, this is, you know, this should, in theory, work. Uh, the problem is with this approach is you sort of ride the roller coaster, you balance the sensitive and the resistant cells. But as you can see in the diagram, the resistant cell population eventually does start to grow. So resistance will eventually emerge. And all the people on the prostate cancer trial, eventually they have progressed to, to the next stage in their disease. But they've had like four years and then there's another drug that they can try and also another treatment. So you sort of start to think, well, you're just eking out much longer the hit that you get from each treatment. And also overall, they had fewer side effects because you're using a lower dose of drug over that whole time because you're only treating for half the time. And uh, some people are off treatment for, for months at a time and have a really good quality of life. So, you know, if this was a drug, this would be in the newspaper headlines everywhere. And it just baffles me that more people aren't kind of, you know, really excited about it. And when I first heard about it, the hair stood up on the back of my neck. And um, I think that this kind of approach is really exciting. But the problem is that this is about controlling, not curing. And the new ideas based on understanding how cancers evolve, how these different populations of cells fight it out against each other, what encourages them or what suppresses them, how can you make cells less fit, how can you uh, increase the, the sort of chances that cheats will be suppressed and more benign cells will prosper. This is all about controlling cancer. It's not about curing cancer. And it's certainly not about a wonder drug. And in many cases, actually, some of these drugs that may be better for control based on evolutionary principles are drugs that have actually been uh, disregarded as not being good enough, that they don't kill enough cells, that they don't you know, work to improve survival long enough because they just haven't been used in the right way. And the exciting idea that there could be many, many, many treatments out there that we can use in a cleverer, more evolutionary way to steer cancers where we want them to go, rather than just trying to like nuke them from orbit and hoping for the best, I think is incredibly exciting. But, you know, again, this is not cure. This is uh, control. So the next question, again, if we're thinking about this in an evolutionary way, is can we actually drive cancer all the way to extinction? Because if we view cancer as an evolutionary process, a Darwinian process, and thinking about cancers as populations of cells, can we actually make the buggers extinct? Can we kill them off properly?
And there are examples. So we need to look to the natural world for examples of how to do this. And it doesn't come from one big hit. Because even if you think about, oh, famous extinction events, like, you know, the asteroid that did for the dinosaurs. Well, it did for most of the dinosaurs. We've still got dinosaurs. There's some in my tree outside, you know, that some of them survived and they evolved into all kinds of wonderful things. Uh, you know, philosophy point, are birds cancer? Uh, no, they're not. Um, but, you know, it didn't get rid of all the dinosaurs. So, you know, even massive extinction events like an asteroid where like just one big nuke hits, that is not going to get rid of everything. So we need to think more cleverly about what do we know actually drives species to extinction. And one example that Bob talked to me about is the heath hen. Now, um, heath hens, they were indigenous to North America and they're all sort of up the, the east of America, east coast of America. And when the colonists arrived from Europe, they were like, wow, these, these birds are about the size of a turkey. And they're like, there's good eating on one of those. And they set about massively hunting them. And there's even a suggestion that the first uh, Thanksgiving turkey, mythical Thanksgiving turkey, was actually a heath hen. So, you know, these were very, very popular. They were hunted for food, almost down to extinction, down to small population. And they ended up with just the solitary population of heath hens by the late 19th century was on Martha's Vineyard on the coast of the US. And that habitat, as more and more people moved to the area, their habitat started to shrink. So there were just, you know, it, the environment wasn't great for them. There just wasn't room to expand. So they'd already been shrunk to a small population. Their habitat was shrinking. They had a very small breeding population by that point. So there was low genetic diversity, fewer ways of evolving themselves out of trouble. And then there were a few kind of freak events. There was a fire on their breeding grounds. There were several harsh winters in quick succession. And then there was finally, there was a disease. And because they had such little genetic diversity, that was what did for them. And the last heath hen we know of, he was so rare that he has a name. He was called Booming Ben. Uh, Booming Ben finally died in 1932. And that was the end of the heath hen. And when we look at what we know of all extinctions, they are similar things. There's a series. It's not just one thing that does for the population. It's a series of events that reduces the population, reduces the habitat. There's sort of a freak like woof, you know, a woof event that, uh, that diminishes the population all at once. And then there's sort of a way of picking away at it till it just cannot sustain itself. And you're like, well, how can we apply this to actually extinguishing cancers in the body and you go well we've already done this this has been done by trial and error in the treatment of childhood leukemia which is now various combinations of different drugs that are applied at different times in different ways with certain timing that actually extinguish the populations of cells down to the point where the population collapses and the cancer goes extinct and that combination was calculated, it was not calculated, it was developed by trial and error over many, many, many years, trying different drugs, different modes of action, different timings. And now we're at a point where um, most, you know, I think it's around 90% of childhood leukemias are now cured. And there are long-term side effects, and that is something that is still always going to be an issue with cancer treatment. So making kinder treatments 
particularly for childhood cancers, I think is, is still a very important issue. But this idea that the right treatments applied in the right way, in a rational way, can drive a cancer to extinction, I feel really hasn't been explored enough. And um, one of the interesting immediate applications of this would be the way that we treat cancer currently. You sort of, you try and knock it down, you knock it down, you try and knock it down. And then you're like, right, well, we'll wait and see if it comes back. But what you want to do is knock it down, knock it down, knock it down. And then when it looks like there's hardly anything left, go in with a different drug. Because you can guarantee that whatever cells are left there will be resistant to the drug you've just treated with, but might be sensitive to another one. So by understanding those populations, and this is where the genetics is really important, by actually really working out what populations of cells have we got in there, what are their genetics, what drugs are they sensitive or resistant to, what proportions, what proportions are we dealing with, we can start to devise extinction strategies for cancer. And the problem is, is that this does not look like the cure that we think it should be. We want a wonder drug. We want a bottle of pills that is the cure for cancer. And this is something that has driven cancer charities and, and organizations for many, many years. And this idea may be that cancer is something that we, we learn to control and even learn to live with. It's really hard to get your head around. The men on the adaptive therapy trial for prostate cancer, you know, lying there at night, knowing that they've stopped treatment and they have to wait for their cancer to grow back and hope that it works again. That's a very psychologically hard place to be in. And uh, Mel Greaves, who runs the uh, Center for Cancer Evolution at the Institute of Cancer Research, when that center was launched, they did a big press thing. And the next day, there was a very sniffy editorial in the Times. And it said, uh, you know, talking about this sort of idea that Mel was talking about of controlling cancer, of living with it, of really understanding it as an evolving living system, rather than just trying to nuke it from orbit. The, um, the editorial says, it says, take Cancer Research UK. The charity's slogan is, together we will beat cancer. If its slogan were, as Professor Greaves might have it, together we will delay cancer, would it have raised enough money to fund research into almost more than 200 different types of cancer? Almost certainly not. And that, you know, is a problem. So what sort of, what should our new slogan for for cancer research be and uh yeah one of the uh, when I was talking to Peter Campbell at uh, at the Sanger Institute I said well you know so what what's the end game you know what what are you hoping to get to by trying to understand cancer in this new way and he said well I don't know I, I guess it's that you live long enough to die of something else and you know we are we are not gods we do not live forever none of us does and you know, absolutely, I do not want myself or anyone I love to get cancer, to die from cancer. I want us, you know, it's an absolute horrible, horrible disease. And I would like to see the back of it as much as the next person. But we have to accept that it is part of life. We will never live in a world where cancer will not emerge. And we need a much more realistic way of thinking about the emergence of resistance if we are to take that glass from half full to fuller and then hopefully, you know, to full so that all of us can 
in our own sweet time, die of something else. Um, so, I mean, it's not a terribly cheerful message. We are all going to die. But I really, really hope for myself and for the people I love and for all of you that it's not of cancer. And this writing this book really has been a journey of understanding. And, um, you know, I think we can be very afraid of cancer. And I'll end with this quote from Marie Curie. And she said, uh, apparently, nothing in life is to be feared, it is only to be understood. And I think if we can really understand cancer more, we will fear it less. And I'll uh, end with that little quote from Peter there. And um, thank you very much for your attention. Please, please, please buy my book. Um, it's available from rebelcellbook.com. I'm selling a very limited number of signed copies and, um, and signed book plates as well. So um, if you head over to the website, there's links to where to buy the book from all the good and evil retailers and also where you can buy um, book plates and signed copies. So thank you for your attention. Thank you, Kat, for an excellent talk. That was really, really interesting. Um, and I've been watching the chat the whole way through and people are super interested, asking loads of questions, which is what we like to see. Um, so I'm now going to move over to Slido where we've got uh, all of our questions ready to ask you. Um, and I'm going to start going through them roughly in order, I think, um, in order that people have voted for them. Um, so we'll start off with a question from uh, Anonymous, who has said, is there a recent update on the link between neurodegeneration and cancer? Uh, this is one you started with a question. I don't know. Um, <laughs> That's what always is... the way when it comes to cancer. Isn't yeah. it? What is so there's a couple of interesting things there. So one is the thing that we uh Almost there's like neurodegenerate, neurodegenerative diseases. I can never say that word. Uh, neurodegenerative diseases and cancer are almost kind of two sides of a coin because cancer is basically a disease of too much life, too many cells, too much life, too much proliferation. And neurodegeneration is kind of a disease of cell death. So like too much death and not enough proliferation. So they're sort of flip sides. Um, but yeah, I don't know much or particularly what that question pertains to. But I will say that one thing that is absolutely wild that I discovered, it's one of the weirdest things, not the weirdest thing I discovered in the book, but one of them is that um, I discovered that for brain tumours, um, brain tumours arise in the brain, obviously, uh, but they will actually form synapses and connections. The cancer cells will form connections with normal brain cells. And because they are still cells, they're still kind of doing a bit of what they're meant to do. And you start to think, well, that's really interesting that these cancerous cells are, are still acting as part of the brain and wired in. And maybe that is explaining a bit of some of the, the neurological problems that people describe when they have cancers and particularly brain tumours, that it's not just the effect of actually having a tumour in the a brain. physical tumour there, yeah. But there is something to do with kind of the connections that, that these cancer cells are making. So it's it was very interesting. It's still That's still very early stuff, but I thought that was... Um, yeah, it's really, really interesting and slightly scary. <laughs> yeah, no, there's, there's so many. As, as I was going through the book, there's so many sort of weird, odd, like, wow, kind of things uh, in there. So the next question we've got is from another anonymous uh, questioner who said um, prolific replication of non-differentiated cells is a default, even in unicellular organisms. Is there a way to induce differentiation of cancer formations? 
Yeah, this is a really interesting question. And this kind of comes back down to this idea of the society of cells, that cells are working effectively in a society where they they know their place, they know their job. And that's what we call differentiation is when a cell has gone down a pathway to decide what it's going to do. And actually, I, I don't think it ended up getting into the book, but there is this big argument about whether cells are always trying to proliferate and the, the structures around them prevent them from doing so, or whether cells basically, they proliferate and then they just stop. And the, so there's sort of this balance of like, do cells really want to live or do cells are cells lazy and don't really want to live? Um, and I'm kind of coming on the, the side of like, cells kind of want to live um, because Darwin is real, you know, natural selection is real and life wants to live. Cells just going to sell. They're going to do what cells do. So I think there's some really interesting ideas about trying to drive cells to differentiation. And this is actually a treatment for some types of cancer, particularly, I think, childhood cancers. You can treat them with compounds that actually drive those cells to become fully differentiated because particularly childhood cancers are really embryonic cells. They're developmental cells that have got stuck at a certain point due to the mutations that they've picked up. And, you know, they, they're sort of, they aren't going fully to their differentiation pathway. So there are some cancers that you can treat that send them fully down that pathway. So that is an interesting idea. And another related thing is the idea of, um, they're called benign boosters. So this is the idea of chemicals or drugs that sort of boost benign outcomes for cells. So this sort of differentiated, lazy, you know, let's settle down in your society, be a good cell kind of drugs, um, and and trying to boost those populations to keep the cancerous cells in check. So there's some interesting ideas there, definitely. That is really interesting. Yeah, very interesting. I so cool. (laughs) Like playing with differentiation is is really interesting. Yeah. And as you've said throughout your talk, just figuring out how cancer works tells us a lot of different, gives us cool ideas about how we can then try and play around with that and figure out a cool way to to manage cancer if if we know that maybe an outright cure isn't an achievable goal. But this, this, one of the other things on the list of like really weird things that blew my mind is that this concept that every innovation of evolution, of biology, we find in cancers. So the wildest one, I'm not going to spoiler it too much, but it turns out cancer cells can have sex, right? Okay. Yeah, (laughs) sex has evolved in the history of life on Earth several times, and and it it can evolve within a cancer. Um, But one of the other interesting things was that, you know, if you think about cancers as more like the kind of the dark side of life or the dark side of development, where they're sort of differentiating on on wrong pathways and proliferating in disorganized ways. This wild, wild thing, um, it's called, so there's a process called angiogenesis, which is how tumors grow a blood supply. They send out signals to nearby blood vessels and these little blood vessels grow in and kind of plumb in the cancer and provide oxygen and nutrients. And there's been so much effort going into finding drugs or ways of like shutting off the blood supply and they haven't really worked very well. It's mostly been a complete bust in, in cancer. They've actually, these drugs have then been applied for other things like sort of macular degeneration, where you get blood vessels growing where they shouldn't. But they've been a real bust in cancer and no one could figure out why. And years ago, a woman called Mary Hendricks, she was looking at melanomas, skin cancers, and discovered that the melanoma cancer cells 
were differentiating into blood vessels. So the cancer was plumbing itself back out into the mains. Rather than stimulating normal blood vessels to grow in, it was growing kind of cancer blood vessels back out. And it was like, this is wild. She called it vascular mimicry. And she published a few papers and everyone was like, no, that's not how it works. Um, because, you know, this guy, Judah Falkman's discovered angiogenesis and all the factors involved and we're all making drugs for it. So shut up and go away. <laughs> Um, and she just could not get any traction for it. I tried to get in touch with her for the book, but um, she never got back to me. But then it turns out, uh, you know, years later, uh, a man in Cambridge basically finds the same thing, publishes it in Nature. And I was like, oh, my God, this, this is, is the thing. answer. <laughs> it's a thing now. <laughs> um, yeah. So there that's you go. really frustrating. So, I'm going to ask you a question now that's that's not that's my own question, but it kind of leads on from that. Is is that a story you found a lot when you've been researching this book that that women in research are struggling to get their voices heard in that sort of way? Um, yeah, I mean, certainly what surprised me in the book was how many of these ideas are really not new. So the idea of the society of cells is not new at all. The idea that cancer is kind of emergent out of tissue, that it's a disease of like, you know, sort of the body and differentiation, not just a genetic shopping list. These are old, old ideas. You've got people writing about this in the 60s. You've got Peter Noel writing about cancer evolution in the 70s and like, cancers are going to evolve. This might be problematic. We should think about this. And everyone just ignores it. And one of the, some of the women that I uncovered sort of wonderful stories, there's a researcher called Maud Sly, who was working in Chicago in the uh, early early 20th century. And she became very interested in whether cancer could be passed down the generations. And so she started breeding loads and loads and loads and loads of mice and found certain cancers arising and being passed on. So she started to identify the heredity, hereditary nature of some cancer susceptibilities. And we now know that some inherited gene faults, things like the BRCA genes, P53, some of the bowel cancer genes, those run through families and significantly increase the risk of cancers. And she was doing all this work with mice, like breeding thousands of mice. She took them to visit her mother. You know, she kept her breeding <laughs> populations, went across the US to visit her dying mother. She couldn't get money, couldn't get funding, couldn't get recognition. Um, also, part of the problem was that she was really, really, really into eugenics. And a lot of the work on inherited cancer risk got very tied up in the early eugenics movement in sort of the 1930s, uh, both in humans and in animals, and um, really fell out of favour. And I think, again, it took a while to come back to the point where we could say, actually, some of these cancers are inherited. Let's Now we can find the genes and screen and offer treatments rather than the horrific <laughs> eugenic <laughs> idea of, of doing it. Like so much of genetics is involved in eugenics and it's just horrendous. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, the, yeah, the early history of like hereditary cancer is all tied up in eugenics. It's terrible. <laughs> <laughs> OK, so the next question we've got is from another anonymous um, questioner. And it might take a little bit of interpretation on your part because I'm not sure I fully understand it. Um, up the, they say our body only contains around two glasses or a pint of live cells. The rest is intercellular tissues, collagen, bone, etc. Does cancer leverage the loss of ICF? Um. I'm going to do the kind of political thing and like answer the question I want to answer. That's uh, <laughs> here, which is here is a really curious thing. So, yeah, a tumor is not just cancer cells. 
in the same way that your normal tissue is not just cells. Like we are held together by uh, the intracellular matrix. And in, in tumors, we call this stuff the stroma. So it's all the stuff that is not cancer cells. And this is intracellular matrix, kind of gluey stuff, collagen tissues, immune cells, healthy cells that are in there, stuff called fibroblasts. All these cells are mixed up in there. And they give the tumors the kind of the solidity that we think of as a, as a solid cancer. And, you know, that, that's why we think of cancers as lumps and bumps. Curiously, when you actually look at the physical properties of cancer cells, cancer cells themselves are squishier and more motile than the, the cells around them. And it's interesting because you sort of, they have this firm substrate it's like trying to run on whether you try and run on dry sand or on firm wet sand. It's like the cancer cells move on this firm substrate and it actually encourages metastasis. And there's some really interesting stuff. I talk about it a little in the book. Uh, and as someone who also hates physics as well as maths, I'm sorry. <laughs> don't, you know, don't come at me. Um, the stuff about the actual physical properties of the tissues of the body and cells and the kind of the squishiness of cells and like they kind of can turn sideways and wriggle out of tumors and that's how they might spread and like just um there's a lovely demonstration i don't know where the video is but um this guy who works on the physics of cells you have these he has these hexagonal blocks in a dish and they're all the same shape they're all hexagonal blocks and they're meant to represent kind of normal cells and you shake the dish and they all stay in one place and then you put in one block that's elongated, like a cancer cell that we know is kind of elongated and squishier. And you shake the, block, uh, shake the blocks and it works its way out just by the physical interactions of the shapes of the tissues. And you're like, this is, cells have physical properties. Bodies have physical properties, not just genetic ones. And again, I think we've ignored them for quite some time and at our peril. Um, so, yeah, in interesting question. I probably didn't answer it. I've answered my own question. There we go. <laughs> um, another anonymous question. Um, this person asked, are cancers restricted to animals? How about other multicellular organisms? So, yeah, this is an interesting one. So it depends on your definition of cancer. Uh, in humans and uh, mammals, we define cancers as a growth that breaks through what's called the basement membrane, which is kind of like the molecular cling film that's around our internal tissues so once once uh, you get the dif that's the difference between a benign growth and a cancer is when it breaks through that that kind of membrane and because mammalian and, and animal bodies are built like this we can define that as cancer so animals can get cancer when you think about something like plants they have really stiff cellulose walls they have kind of really stiff plant cell walls so Cancer growths, cancer-like growths do emerge. So you can see galls and all sorts of kind of lumps and bumps on, on plants, often caused by the work of insects and the response to insect damage. So you can say, well, that is proliferation, out of control, not where it's wanted. And um, the best example of this is the cacti that I talk about in the book, these sort of fasciated cacti, where instead of having a nice you know, strand of cactus, like the kind of cartoon cactus, they, they explode in all these growths and lumps and bumps. And it looks for all the world like kind of exuberant growth that you might expect in a, in a cancer. So plants do have these kind of processes. And fungi as well, you can see growth in there and seaweeds and all sorts of things, because this is just stuff that emerges out of multicellularity. 
Um, I particularly focused on animals because I'm still particularly interested in in humans. But yeah, you see out of control growth. You can see populations of bacteria that are proliferating unusually quickly. And you can go, well, is that bacteria cancer? Yeah, I don't know. Discuss. Um, but yeah, you could argue that cancer is just a, an unusual growth pattern that you haven't seen, you wouldn't expect to see in yeah. that organism. Well, if you define it as cheats within a cellular society, then yeah, it's it's any group of cells that is doing more, taking more, proliferating more, not dying, you know, secreting mess into its environment and not cleaning it up. It's any and your cells in, in anything that has cells. Yeah, because, you know, if there are genetic variations that enable you to do that, you can cheat uh, cheat your neighbours. We've got a question from Dave the Drummer who asked, are there any upsides to cancer at all? It always seems like a total disaster, but evolution usually has multiple uses in mind. So this is the sort of the slightly challenging bit where, you know, everyone's got to die of something. And as a species... The, the graph of cancer incidence, it, it's remarkably flat throughout youth, adolescence, early middle age, and, and incidence does rise up um, after 60 and, and continues to go up. There's a weird kind of kick down by about 95. So basically, if you make it to 95... If you've survived that long, yeah, you're doing all right. Like, there's something really good in there. And I think, again, that it's interesting to think about not only it's why are we resistance. so... Yeah, why are so we resistant to cancer when we're younger, but also like, what's what's going on in centenarians? <laughs> Fascinating. Um, but yeah, so we have evolved as a species. Our species has evolved for a certain lifespan. You know, all species have evolved for a certain lifespan. You don't get mice where some of them live for three weeks and some of them live for nine years. They all kind of live for like, you know, six months. Uh, most of them get predated. Uh, humans, we have a lifespan, an average lifespan. And so we have evolved to get through our childbearing years, through, you know, all that kind of stuff. Maybe our children will have children of their own. And then, and it's very sad as a woman kind of getting older in my life, like evolution's going to give up on me at some point. So, you know, if you want to be really horrifically utilitarian about it, Cancer is basically nature's way of, you know, getting That's rid of us. Time to get off now. <laughs> um, yeah, it's like, you know, time's up. Um, unfortunately, we've developed this thing called love where we love our grandparents and our parents. And we would really rather that they Just didn't die. In, yeah, that they didn't die in their 60s and 70s and even 80s, you know, when they are really full of life. So, you know, I have talked to I talked to a few people are saying, like, can we will humans evolve our way out of this? You know, our patterns of reproduction are changing. Will we sort of evolve out of this? And the answer was probably not because evolution is really slow and we've evolved for thousands of years on this basic trajectory. Um, But like I said, even if we can push it, if we can push the average incidence of cancer, like average five, 10, 15 years out. Um, that would really be transformative for many, many, many cases of cancer. Yeah. Got a question from Pontus who said, if chromosomes get so messed up over time, how come reproductive cells manage to form a new human being that is healthy? I think there's some really interesting genetic yeah, things to talk about here. There's a few interesting genetic things. So one is the uh, differentiation between the germline and the soma. So again, this is one of the byproducts of multicellularity 
is that you define special cells that are going to be your germline, that are going to carry the torch to the next generation. And again, being horrifically utilitarian about this, the entire purpose of your body is to like keep these cells safe and get them to their destination. So we, there's a lovely idea of like the, the dirty work hypothesis of the soma, the somatic cells of the body that they can pick up mutations, doesn't really matter. You know, you don't really care about repairing damage in those so much, but there are mechanisms that really protect your germ cells, your eggs and your sperm. So we do know that as people get older, there is, you know, there is a decline in egg quality and sperm quality because damage is inevitable. But actually protecting those germ cells, keeping them safe, repairing the damage, making sure that they're protected, that does help to protect those cells for the next generation. Whereas those mechanisms aren't so severe in the somatic cells because they're always turning over, you can get rid of them, it doesn't matter so much. And there's a really interesting thing um, that this happens in many other organisms. So um, plants, you get more mutations in the leaves of plants because they're disposable than in like the stems of plants that are basically the generative bit of plants so that is that kind of tells you that evolution knows where it's important to keep stuff safe and knows where it doesn't really matter um, and alas in the grand scheme of things um, all our bodies are sadly They're sadly disposable <laughs> um, I, I don't have kids I don't intend to so like yeah I'm just all disposable <laughs> at this point <laughs> On an evolutionary basis. <laughs> yeah, on a, on a, for an evolutionary value. Although I, I absolutely subscribe to the JBS Haldane principle that I would lay down my life for two brothers or eight cousins. And I have two sisters and eight cousins. So I'm <laughs> genetically, I am good. Um, we've got a question from C. Foxy who asked, um, how do we differentiate cancerous cells from non-cancerous cells, given that you describe this patchwork of mutations that we have in normal cells. How do we draw the line between the sad and the bad? Is there is there a spectrum? Can we see it in a biopsy? Is there is there an easy way to tell? Yeah. So I what I'm leaning towards is that the the difference that's a really kind of bad cell is this chromosomal instability. It's tipping into this, um, and I talk quite a bit in the book about a concept called aneuploidy, which is where you're like losing chromosomes, gaining chromosomes, see these large scale chromosomal rearrangements rather than just this sort of slow tick of mutations in particular genes. So I think that that's, if you were trying to detect like what is cancer, you want to start looking out for those sorts of incidents. And actually, this discovery that a lot of our cells do carry mutations, it does make it very challenging to go like, well, what is normal? Uh, and then again, if you have like targeted drugs that are targeting cells with these mutations, and a lot of normal cells have those mutations, are you potentially that could be a way that you're inducing a lot of side effects with these very targeted drugs? So I think that um, the discovery that we don't, you know, normal what is normal, everything is a bit sad, does really make us think about, well, what is that tipping point into cancer? And do we actually define that then by the phenotype? Like, how do these cells behave? They really have adopted those cheating behaviours and they are proliferating, they are not dying, they are aggressively growing. Um, and underlying that will be that they've suddenly managed to ignite this kind of bin fire of evolution by doubling their chromosomes, by starting to like really mess around 
with the genome at scale rather than individual mutations. Yeah, and that's I think that's a really interesting point is that it's not, it's not just differentiating a cancer cell from a non-cancer cell, it's knowing which of those important mutations. I saw a really interesting paper a few years ago that said um, even if you've got 150 mutations in a cancer cell, only one or four of those might actually be driving the cancer, that cell to be a cancer cell. Yeah, I mean, what is a cancer driver? I think this is it's really this sort of genetic bingo attitude towards cancer, I think has been very misleading. And also you can really see um, just the idea of the magic bullet. We've been misled by particularly a drug called Gleevec, which is a drug for a type of leukemia that is driven by one single genetic change. It's two genes that kind of get pasted together. And it's very common in um, this type of leukemia. And Gleevec was a drug that was designed to specifically target the molecule that's made from this genetic fusion. An absolute wonder drug of its time. It's, yeah. it's it still is. I think it's the single most incredible cancer drug of all yeah. time. It's transformed survival for that cancer. Absolutely. But it really misled people into thinking that if we can just find more of these things and make more of these drugs, then it will work for everything. And it hasn't because this particular type of cancer isn't really like typical fully down that road. Yeah. It's, it's almost like a, a pre-cancer and it's a blood cancer as well. And so that's been that's been very, very misleading. I think. Cleo asked, um, there are cancers that you die with rather than die of. Is that linked to anything like age or is it just chance and what happens uh, to mutate? Yeah, I mean, there is a big whack of chance in there. So like I showed, it's like, you know, if you develop even one or two cancers in your lifetime, somewhere in there, you have won a shitty lottery where your chances of winning were like one in a 10 to the 14. And there are many cancers that people die with. I think most men will die with some form of prostate cancer. Um, many women, there's a, a lot of autopsy studies that have shown that many women have small breast tumors. We're all, I think if you looked inside any of us, you would find all kinds of things, which is why I'm really not in favor of like, oh yeah, just take a trip through an MRI scanner every couple of years. Like, hell no. <laughs> You're going to have a um, lot of false positives there. A lot. You know, you get incidental omas where you find lumps and bumps that you're like, oh, that looks like a cancer. And you're like, that may never have killed you. And this yeah. this challenge of separating tigers from pussycats, I think is is really important in screening. And I will say particularly, this is my personal view and my personal hobby horse, I think particularly with breast screening. I think we pick up a lot of early cancers that we don't know would have become a problem. Mm. Um, and women go through a lot of treatment and worry and anxiety for this. Um, and prostate cancers as well, you know, the, there's a reason, even though people say, oh, we should have PSA screening for every single person, every single man. Um, and the problem is, is that it, a lot of men have growth in their prostate and it is not cancer. Yeah. And so, yeah, I think that that question of like, well, what, what is a, a dangerous cancer and what is a, a collection of cells that are growing is still something that we need to really define. Gray asked, is there a correlation between the ability to regrow limbs like axolotls Great. and high or low susceptibility to cancer? Again, um, I'm going to answer. I'm going to answer the question I want to answer. Uh, <laughs> that is an absolutely fantastic question. And I'm going to answer it with relation to that all the processes that cancer cells use are our own biological processes. 
So the fact that we can, if you cut yourself, we regenerate cells, we, we make cells, we, they migrate, they knit up the wounds. All those processes are the same processes that cancer cells use. All the processes as an egg is growing into a baby, cancer cells use. You need to multiply, you need to differentiate, you need to like migrate. Um, all of those processes are used by cancer cells and the same with wound healing. And it's interesting when you look at different species. So, for example, I, I used to work with mice in the laboratory and mice are absolutely incredible. You can do like open surgery on a bench on a mouse and it will just heal up like they have incredibly fast healing. They're also incredibly cancer susceptible because their cells are much more geared to like, oh, we're ready to go. We're ready to go. Um, so they're good, very good at healing. They live fast. They die young. They're very good at, at turning into new mice. Um, but that is the, the flip side of that is that their cells are much more to the edge of going out of control. When I spoke to someone who was doing a survey of cancer across the whole of life, she went to someone at San Diego Zoo and said, can you give me a sample from one of your Galapagos turtle uh, tortoises? And, uh, you know, just I just want a little bit of skin from one of your tortoises, giant tortoises. And the zookeeper was like, no. And she was like, no, I just, just a tiny bit, please, a tiny, just a little punch, tiny bit. And she's like, no, because it takes a year for a tortoise to heal. And that's because their trade-off is longevity and incredible cancer suppression for a huge amount of time, years and years and years and years. But it means they're not very good at healing. So why are tortoises so, you know, horny and shelly and have these thick skins? It's because they don't want to get wounded. And humans are somewhere in the middle. You know, we've got kind of thick skin. We can heal our wounds. Um, but we those processes can get reactivated to become cancer. So kind of similar things like these are all just biological processes that get hijacked by cancer cells. And it depends on the species as to how easy that can happen. And I don't know about cancer and axolotls, but that is a great question. <laughs> Matt asked, do we spend too much on cancer research? Could we get stronger benefits overall from rebalancing funds towards some other medical areas or the reverse? I think that far too much is spent on developing a very narrow spectrum of the same types of cancer drugs. Um, it, I, um, I talk a bit in the book about the, um, it's not the kind of the hashtag me too, but the me too cancer drugs where every company is just, as soon as there's a target, like everyone's developing drugs to, to these targets and the, you know, endless kinase inhibitors. And I really think there needs to be a lot more focus on how do we actually use these drugs effectively, not just find a new one and throw it out into the world at vast expense, but that proper real understanding of what are the, the genetic patchworks of tumours? How do cancers evolve? And the work that is going on to try and understand the evolutionary playbook of cancer um, and these treatment strategies that are a bit more informed. I think a lot more money needs to go into that rather than let's just find some more targets and make some more drugs, basically. And also in prevention wise, like studying what keeps tissue healthy, what keeps the society of cells healthy and how do we encourage that? William asked if a cancer has evolved immunity to a drug which is release, replaced by a succession of new drugs, could a fast evolving cancer lose immunity and then be vulnerable again to the first drug? Um, I mean, that's an interesting one. 
because it, I think the answer is going to, it depends on the cancer and it depends on the drug and it depends on the evolutionary trajectory of that cancer. I mean, generally, once, so once you know that resistance has emerged, it's a whole population of cells. So all the cancer cells in the body will, many of them, so even if some of them lose it, many of them will still have the resistance to that drug. So I think it's very unlikely that wholesale um, a cancer will like lose resistance. So it's more going back to that idea of like the roller coaster where you accept that some cancer cells will be resistant, some cancer cells will be sensitive, and there's going to be a balance of populations as you apply or take away the drug. Um, but yeah, there's there's some really interesting stuff about like um, how mutations can kind of re-arise in, in cancers and like the the incredible genetic diversity in there. It's its like it's a microcosm of evolution in some of these really fast evolving cancers. But I think it's very unlikely that suddenly the, all the cancer cells would, would forget that, that they've yeah. got resistance. Uh, we've got an anonymous question. The question is, what is the contribution of the immune system in cancer, re- cancer recovery or survival? Um, Yes. So the immune system, I think, is incredibly important and it's really highlighted by um, the success of immunotherapies for some cancers. And like I say, they don't work for everyone. Um, I think the the immune system is also behind some of the examples that are where, um, you know, there are some examples of spontaneous remissions of cancer and the immune system inevitably plays a role in response to any treatment. You know, it's it's any kind of cancer treatment is an assault on the body and an assault on the cancer cells. And so the immune cells will be in there. Um, And one of the things that I talk a bit about in the book is understanding like the landscape of the tumor, because tumors are full of immune cells, Uh, but it may be about where they're distributed. So, you know, tumors are not homogenous, perfect distributions of of cancer cells and, and immune cells and fibroblasts. You know, there will be pockets that are hot, with immune cells and you can think of them as predators you know trying to seek out and destroy cancer cells and there'll be pockets that are cold so what makes those pockets resistant to immune cells can we infiltrate them what are the markers that we know about how many immune cells are there and what they're up to and can we encourage them um so yeah it's i think the immunology of cancer immune oncology is a really fast-growing field it's a really interesting field but you actually really need to be able to see, using microscopy, see the actual landscape of cancer that's in there. And I talk, uh, there's a whole chapter in, in the book where I talk about that. And it's super interesting stuff. They're using my AI imaging and all this kind of thing. And it's, it's very super cool. Um, so, yeah. Excellent. Um, we've got a question from... Uh, I'm not even going to attempt to read that username. Um do you think we should be focusing on the early detection of cancer uh, instead of cure? Some cancers, uh, when you get the symptoms, it's too late. Um, yeah, so I think early diagnosis is really, really key for many cancers. We know the earlier you diagnose a cancer, uh, the more likely you are to be able for a solid cancer, be able to remove it with surgery before it's spread. One of the challenges is that even with tiny, tiny tumours, they can still seed cells into the bloodstream um, and those cells can in the future grow so that is always going to be a challenge Um, and then the flip side of trying to detect cancer earlier and earlier is that the more sensitive you get 
you're starting to pick up things like, well, is this actually a cancer? And that question of like, not just what is cancer, but when is cancer is something I return to quite a bit in the book. It's like, not just what is, but when, when do you say like, yeah, that's, that's something we need to do we need something to do about. Something, yeah. yeah. Um, another anonymous question. I think this is one that a lot of skeptics in the audience will be asking. <laughs> um, why do you think there are many cancer quacks, uh, but not many heart disease quacks in the pseudo medical uh, market, even though cancer seems less prevalent? That's a really interesting question. And all I can think of is that it goes back probably to actually, probably to like the 19th century and the early 20th century. Cancer is a very visible disease. Like you can see it manifest. You see it as tumors. You see people waste away very dramatically um, with heart disease um you know yes people get uh, you know demonstrate the symptoms of heart disease maybe they're sort of struggling to to breathe or to to move and things like that but quite often like people just drop dead uh from a heart attack or you have a stroke or something like that and so i think that um that that thinking back to the early roots of the kind of cancer quack movement in the like the late late 19th century early 20th century I think it's just because it's it's visible and it's something to do and it was something that killed you very fast mm. with heart disease it's like you don't necessarily know you've got it and it tends again to affect people who are who are older um and we also know particularly heart disease being such a prevalent um disease of that that is something I think we can pin on our modern lifestyles actually rather than cancer um yeah I think that uh it's something that you feel you can do something about and the the, the roots of cancer quackery go back over a hundred years and I think have, have just grown out from there so it's we just don't have a tradition we don't have a tradition of heart there's no tradition of that quackery. it's definitely starting to creep in though I definitely see um in some of the skeptical uh things that I come across you see people starting to criticize statins that's a big one uh, there's a lot of um, pseudoscientific criticism of statins and conspiracy theories around statin use and, and, and over medication with statins. Um, and obviously that is related to cholesterol and, and heart disease. So there's definitely some starting to creep in there, but it's, it doesn't seem to be as prevalent as with, with cancer for sure. Yeah. And the, the history of cancer quackery is absolutely fascinating. <laughs> it really is. Yeah. <laughs> um, Barack, uh, Barack, uh, asked do animals that don't get cancer in quotation marks actually do the moderated response dose trick with their immune systems rather than actually not getting the cancer in the first place so animals that don't get cancer they've all solved peto's paradox in their own way so there are lots and lots of different ways you can not get cancer so the classic example is like naked mole rats um naked mole rats they they have some genes that are different that control how their cells proliferate. So um, cells have like this kind of concept of cellular space. If they touch cells around them, they're like, right, no, stop there. I, I um, exist here and that's where yes, I stay. <laughs> yeah, it's contact inhibition. And their their naked mole rat cells are really uniquely sensitive to this. And if they touch cells around them, they're like, nope done gonna die uh, <laughs> no thank you uh, they, they really don't like it and um whereas other cells are like they'll tolerate that a bit more so uh, and they also make this kind of sticky glue that's thought to make it really difficult for their cells to start mobilizing and migrating 
elephants have actually got multiple copies of a gene called p53 which kills damaged cells and like if you're an elephant you kind of got some cells to burn basically so as soon as an elephant cell is damaged it just dies um absolutely it will just die um different animals solve things in different ways some do have altered immune systems god capybaras i think ones capybaras are like giant rodents and they are pretty but because of their size and the fact that they're rodents rodents are quite cancer prone um because they sort of you think they have this like live fast die young kind of thing but capybaras are big so you would expect them to get more cancers because they just have more cells but i think that oh god i can't remember how they've solved it but like they've got one way of doing it whales have got a different way of doing it because it's evolution in action each species sort of evolves their own way so some will be immune you know really really their immune systems are super hot on this others will be like oh as soon as the cell's damaged we don't care um you know different organisms have evolved their own solutions to this i have a question uh, my own question um going completely off piste um related to that so where do humans sit on that spectrum of of animals that are really really good at preventing or stopping cancer in its tracks and animals that are really really bad there must be some that are really really prone to cancer and some that are that are much less prone are we somewhere in the middle we're actually kind of in the middle um yeah our cancer rates are not as high as um sort of small rodents and things like that uh but then we're not as good as things like elephants and stuff like that so yeah we're we're kind of average (laughs) they're just just average so and that's if you if you do subtract all the things that we know in our terrible human lifestyles that's the thing there there is just a basal rate of cancer if you could live a perfect perfect lifestyle you know and we we got rid of everything that is bad in the environment Uh, (laughs) there would still be a basal rate of cancer uh so you know it's it's just part of life um, Paul asked, what proportion of cancers are caused by the Earth's natural background radioactivity? Some. Um, and that some depends on where you live in the world. So um, I think there is one. It, so definitely, if you live in Cornwall, you are at increased risk of cancer due to the radon that comes out of granite in Cornwall. There's actually, there's a population it and this is this was one of the stories in the ancients section um i think it's in uh south america there's like a an area where there's particularly like the ground is particularly radioactive and they can find like a lot of cancers in the historical populations there so it's like yeah the proportion is some and it depends on where how how radioactive your area is yeah but yeah Um, definitely some (laughs) Uh, an anonymous question asked is are we too concerned about extending life no matter what should we be concentrating on quality of life and accepting death and aging as a natural process i mean philosophy really isn't it <laughs> um yeah i mean death comes to us all and <laughs> i think yeah i mean no one no one lives forever and it's it's very hard to accept this um what i what i think with with cancer is if we can try and make make sure that like no one loses their life prematurely and also that it doesn't limit life 
So I think definitely focusing on health span and living longer and healthier. And even if people, so the ideas of like the cancer treatments that you're on treatment for longer, but it's kinder because you're actually having less treatment overall and fewer side effects. I think that kind of thing is definitely where we should be moving towards taking that quality of life into account. Yeah, I mean, no one, no one's going to live forever. um, But I would just rather that people lived for longer and certainly through the what would be considered to be the prime of life yeah without developing cancer yeah and I guess that's a big part of it is if we can treat and cure cancers that are that are existing in younger populations in, in populations where you're in that that prime period of your life then that that could be important yeah um, exactly. I think we're going to finish up with two more questions that are slightly more fun questions and then we will uh, let you go and um, so from an anonymous per- in fact they're both from anonymous people um the first one is where did you get your they asked top I happen to know you're wearing a dress where did you get your dress from <laughs> Um, this is a dress. This is a really gorgeous dress. It's um, it's from Joni. I think this one's from Joni Clothing. I get a lot of clothes from there. I've got one with dinosaurs on from them. And I got a really nice one with bicycles on. Particularly if you're a bit of a curvy lady, Joni Clothing, J-O-A-N-I-E. Total recommendation. Also, I've got a little Darwinian necklace. I don't That's know if people really cool. can see that. I've got a like, evolution necklace as well. Very cool. You're completely on brand, on theme. Very science. Science girl. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And our last question, Anonymous asked, can mutations ever give you superpowers? And if so, what superpower would you want? Oh, my goodness. Um... Hmm. I, I asked this question I used to do a talk about like are you a superhero which was about kind of genetic superheroes who have mutations and, and they don't get ill and I asked this question to someone and this this is how I knew that I was meant to be with my partner forever because as I was like oh what superpower do you want and I kind of went well maybe sarcasm he shouted out sarcasm at exactly the same time <laughs> so I, I guess the answer is the superpower of sarcasm <laughs> so uh that's not a great answer but that would be my choice point to end on um thank you very much for giving us such an excellent talk and so much of your time it's been fantastic